Let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask a great thing. We ask that you would use my words to teach your people from your book. And we ask it in the name of your only Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Measles is a highly contagious viral illness transmitted by droplet infection, as in coughing or sneezing. The incubation period is 10 to 14 days. The onset is characterized by fever, respiratory catarrh, and a harsh, non-productive cough. Coplic spots, which are pathognomonic, may be seen on the buccal mucosa, followed by a generalized maculopapula eruption bronchopneumonia, otitis media, enteritis and encephalitis are potentially lethal complications, particularly in very young children. Transient encephalitis, characterized by acute misery, is probably a feature of every case of measles, but a severe neurological disorder is an alarming complication which occurs in approximately one in a thousand cases. That, brothers and sisters, is a brief description of the natural history of measles, a disease which be, has been much in the press recently. It is taken from my textbook on infectious diseases. Measles is an acute illness which is sometimes attended by severe long-term complications and may occasionally be fatal. Today, we are going to consider a disease which affects everyone which has acute and long-term complications and is invariably fatal without treatment. Brothers and sisters, that disease is sin. We are going to study its natural history. So please open your Bibles to the first chapter of the Epistle of James. Our text for today begins at verse 12. However, I'm going to pass over verse 12 and come back to it later for reasons which will soon become apparent. Beginning at verse 13 then. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But what about the Lord's Prayer, you may ask, as I did? Didn't Jesus teach us in chapter 6 of Matthew to pray, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Surely this suggests that God may lead us into temptation, and by implication that he does tempt us. Yet it says here in James that he doesn't. So which is it? In order to resolve this apparent contradiction, we need to understand two things. The first is this. The Greek word translated here and elsewhere as temptation, tempting, etc., <clears throat> can also be translated as trial, and it is. Look at verse 12. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And now verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The word trial in verse 12 comes from the very same Greek root as the words tempted and tempts in verse 13. The very same word is likewise translated as as temptation in the Lord's Prayer. So the same word root may mean either trial or temptation. How the Greek is translated depends upon the context. The second thing is that we need to understand what one might call the natural history of sin. For those of you who aren't familiar with the concept, the natural history of a disease describes the course of that disease from the appearance of the first symptoms or signs to the very end, either recovery or death. An understanding of the natural history of a disease is critically important if one is either trying to prevent it or to treat it. We may consider temptation as the very beginning of the disease. One is exposed to temptation just as one might be exposed to measles. Either one catches the disease or one doesn't. The full-blown disease in this case is sin. James is trying to teach us the natural history of sin for the same reason. One might almost say as a public health measure. He wants us to understand how and why we become exposed to temptation and how we are to avoid the disease of sin. That is what he is trying to teach us in verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I must confess that I found that these verses were not much help to me in my efforts to resolve the apparent contradiction I mentioned earlier. Here, however, is a passage that I did find helpful. Turn to the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, but keep your thumb in James 1. This is a fairly detailed account of the well-known temptation and falling into sin of a man whom God described as a man after my own heart. That man is, of course, King David. Let's see if this story does not coincide with our own experience of sin. Here we go, beginning at the first verse. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. The very first words give a hint of the problem. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David was a king and also a mighty warrior. He should have gone out to battle with his army, 
but he didn't. We are not told why. Already we know two important things. King David was neglecting his responsibilities. It was his kingly duty to lead his army in battle. And second, King David was in the wrong place. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now we come to the temptation, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Okay, so now David is tempted. Of course, at this point, he should have fled the temptation, but he doesn't. No, he flirts with the temptation, if you will forgive the double entendre. He is being lured and enticed by his own desire. He should have tried to put what he saw out of his mind, but in Instead, he pursues it. He's the king, so he asks one of his servants to find out who she is, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So she's a married woman, and not only that, she is the wife of a man whom David must have known fairly well. One of his 30 mighty men, his greatest warriors, Uriah the Hittite. Worse yet, David knows that Uriah the Hittite, her husband, is with the army, safely out of town, where King David himself ought to have been. Now temptation has met up with opportunity. David succumbs and falls into sin. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. So here is the sequence of events. He was neglecting his duty. He was in the wrong place. Temptation came along. Instead of resisting it, he flirted with it. Along came opportunity, and he sinned. That's the way it always happens, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That is the natural history of sin. Now let's go back to our text, James 1, verses 13 and 14. Let no one say, he is, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's a good word, enticed. It comes from the Latin word for firebrand. A firebrand is a burning stick taken from one fire to start another fire. In the days before matches, people would use a firebrand to start fires. If one's fire went out completely, one might go over to one's neighbor and ask him for a firebrand to get one's fire started again. You came home, put the burning stick into the wood you had laid, the wood caught, and a flame appeared. Soon the flames were crackling briskly. You get the picture. It's a very apt metaphor. When the firebrand is put to the wood, 
The wood is quite literally being enticed. Next, it will burst into flame. We are tempted when our desire bursts into flame. So how does this help us with our apparent contradiction, which we still haven't resolved? If we are honest with ourselves about sin, we are acutely conscious of our own weakness and very properly afraid that when we are tempted, we shall fall into sin. As God said to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So let me put it this way. God does not tempt us, but he may lead us into temptation. He may, in his grace, allow us to be exposed to temptation, to test us for our own spiritual growth. Just as he tested Abraham when he commanded him to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. But we have a promise. Corinthians <clears throat> chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It is not a sin to be tempted. It's God's desire that we should resist temptation, thereby becoming more like Jesus. But if we give in to temptation, we sin. And we disappoint our Heavenly Father. He will forgive the sin if we repent and ask his forgiveness. But there will be consequences, just as there were for King David. He committed adultery. He tried to cover up his sin, but he was unsuccessful. He eventually conspired to murder Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. I urge you to read the rest of the story if you don't know it already. In fact, you should read it again, even if you do know it. And then read Psalm 51, David's wonderful poem of repentance and faith. I put the references in the bulletin. So back to our test. text. I mean, Verse 15, Then desire, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let us make no mistake here. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we sin, we deserve death. And that is what we shall get unless we repent and ask forgiveness for our sins and ask Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. So Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, lead us not into temptation, because he knows our weakness. As Jesus said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, for those of you who have difficulty identifying with King David's sin with Bathsheba, 
I shall use a more modern illustration to make the point. An allegory, in fact, to depict the natural history of temptation. Are you all sitting comfortably? You were seven years old. It is Saturday afternoon. You're in the family room, happily absorbed in a video game. While your mother bakes cookies in the kitchen for a get-together after church tomorrow. The cookies smell wonderful when she takes them out of the oven and puts them on racks to cool. I'm just going to run down to the store, she says, as she comes into the family room. I seem to have run out of chocolate chips. I shan't be gone more than 10 or 15 minutes. The door closes behind her, leaving you all alone in the house with a batch of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. You are being tested. Spiritually mature seven-year-old that you are, you ignore the wonderful smells coming from the kitchen and you go back to your video game. But after a few minutes, you stop. They smell so good. The correct procedure at this point would be to shut the door to the kitchen. But you think to yourself, I'll just stand at the kitchen doorway and admire mummy's baking. Now you are being tempted. You are being lured by your own desire. The cookies look so good laid out on the cooling racks. Each one is pleasantly lumpy with its burden of chocolate chips. Ooh, there's a bit that broke off lying under the cooling rack. It would be all right to taste that, wouldn't it? Just to be sure that they really are as good as they look. You are being enticed. The burning stick of your desire has burst into flame. <clears throat> you tiptoe over to the kitchen counter to get the broken bit. It is very good. Oh, look, there's a small misshapen cookie over there. Mummy would never want to serve a misshapen cookie at church, would she? I think I can move the other ones around to fill the gap. You are falling into sin. Just then your mother comes home and catches you in the act. What are you doing in here? Were you stealing cookies? I'm so disappointed in you. She isn't angry, but her disappointment is harder to bear than her anger. You burst into tears of shame. But you shouldn't have left me with them. It's your fault. You made me do it. No, she didn't. It's not her fault. It's yours. You could have stayed in the next room playing video games. I hope that this makes everything clear, brothers and sisters. As Alistair Begg is fond of saying, every sin is an inside job. And now the end of the story. Your mother tells you, I had saved two cookies especially for you, but now I think I'll just have to put them with the others. That is how our Heavenly Father operates. He wants to give us good gifts. So now after this brief digression into deep theology, we circle back to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, 
he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Once again, that word, which is translated here as trial. In fact, every temptation is also a trial. The fact that the same word is used for each concept implies that they are opposite sides of the same coin. We have the picture of a man whom the Lord exposes to temptation as a trial. The man withstands it and he is blessed. Note that it doesn't say that standing the test will win him the crown of life. It says that God gives the crown of life to those who love him. The proof of the man's love of God is that he was able to remain steadfast under trial. The point is that the blessedness does not consist in being delivered from the trial, but in going through it and enduring. Alec Matia puts it well. Such trials are like a divine homework assignment in which we work out for ourselves the truth God has taught us in his word. That is what James means in verses 2, 3, and 4, as you heard from Brian last week. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We are to take joy in doing our homework. In that way, we shall become perfect and complete. In that way, we shall show that we love God, and he will give us the promised crown of life. And now we come to an abrupt transition introduced by an imperative. This is typical of James's epistle. We find five imperatives in a mere 14 verses just in this chapter, each introducing a different idea. Verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, introduces trials and steadfastness. Verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, introduces wisdom and double-mindedness. Verse nine, let the lowly brother boast, introduces the transience of life. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, introduces the natural history of temptation. And now verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, introduces God's gifts. Do you sense the urgency in this seemingly unconnected catalog of ideas, each introduced by an imperative? Do you get the sense that James is, a, James is a driven man, a doer of the word? <clears throat> One can imagine James pacing up and down as he dictates to his scribe who is frantically writing, trying to keep up. There was no shorthand or typewriters in those days. For subject matter, we now turn from God's testing to God's gifts. I am reminded of the chorus of a hymn that we used to sing at Harvest Festival in England. All good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. Then thank the Lord, oh thank the Lord, for all his love. Back to our text, verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, 
with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James takes us back to the first chapter of Genesis, reminding us of who God is and what he has done. In Genesis chapter, of, chapter 1, the father of lights says, this is the beginning of verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then again in verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. <clears throat> and God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Moving on to verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In verse 28, he tells Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. And in verse 29, God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. But in our sinful hearts, we are always wondering, isn't there something even better for me? That was Eve's problem and Adam's, and it has been our problem ever since. They weren't content to accept and enjoy God's provision. They wanted to see if there was something better that God was keeping from them. They wanted to steal from God something that he had not given them. But what does all this mean for us? Let's go back to our study of the natural history of sin. As if we were investigators from the Centers for Disease Control. First question. How can the disease be prevented? Answer, by resisting temptation. Second question, but how are we to resist temptation? Answer, we might begin by learning from the only truly sinless man, from the only one who was ever completely successful in resisting temptation. How did he do it? Turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. This is the first lesson which you heard read so well by Emma earlier in the service. Verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, 
for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord to the test, Lord your God to the test. So what did Jesus do when he was tempted? He quoted scripture. If we are to do likewise and resist temptation, we must make it our business to read the Bible and to know and understand what is written there. Now for the third and fourth questions in our investigation. <clears throat> is there any treatment for the disease? If so, what is the treatment? Answer. The bad news is that we have all caught the disease. Every single one of us. And without treatment, we shall all die. The good news is that there is treatment that is free, that works every time, and has no side effects. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. To obtain this treatment, we must acknowledge that we are sinners and that we deserve to die for our sins. We must confess our sins to God and ask his forgiveness. We must accept Jesus, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, as our Lord and Savior. Then we are promised that we shall be forgiven and that we shall enjoy eternal life with him. If you have not accepted Jesus, I beg you to think carefully about what you've just heard. If you would like to discuss it further, please speak to someone about it today. To me, or to one of the elders, or to someone who looks friendly, looks sitting next to you. We can pray with you. We can pray for you. We can help you to make the most important decision that you will ever make. Heavenly Father, we... We give you thanks for your word that you gave us to instruct us. And we thank you for all the other gifts you've given us. Most especially the gift of your only son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died for our sins on the cross, that we might live with you. And we ask that you would Open the hearts of those who don't yet know you and draw them close to you this day. In Jesus' name we pray.